standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops in which I chat to the journalist and author Lucy Ward about her excellent new non-fiction book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus. It tells the tale of the Russian Empress's decision to become inoculated against smallpox and explains why it was so bold and momentous. An interesting topic to be writing about in a pandemic, I'm sure you'll agree, and to be publishing during a Russian war of aggression. This is actually the first in-person interview I've done since February 2020, and Cambridge chose to celebrate this by being as noisy as humanly possible. We were in a cafe that decided to crank up the music and then close, so we moved to another that decided to turn on a fan on one of the coldest days of the year and then clean its coffee machine. But I think if the subject is interesting enough that that shouldn't matter. A man is this subject interesting. Lucy's book is out this week and I heartily recommend it. Until next time. Tell me where you first discovered this story. I would love to tell you that I first discovered this story buried in the National Archives or in a <laughs> deep inner Russian archive. But actually, if you want the truth, I discovered it in a school playground. I was collecting my son from a new school. We'd just moved back to England because we'd been living, my family had been living for a couple of years in Moscow in my partner's job. And uh, I met another mother in the school playground and I said, um, yeah, we've just moved here from Moscow. And she said, oh, my family has a Russian connection. And I thought she'd probably say she had Russian relatives. And yeah. she said, my great, 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 how many times grandfather inoculated Catherine the Great against smallpox. And I went, what? Wow. <laughs> tell me, tell me about it. And I sort of pushed her against the wall and just made her explain some of this story while the kids kind of went bonkers in the playground. And then that night I went home and Googled and looked around and began looking at this story. And that was ten years ago almost. And it took me eight years to actually write this book, but it all goes back to that school playground. There's a quote on the back of your book that says it reads like a thriller. And I have to say that is absolutely correct. It reminded me a bit of Chernobyl, the TV series, in that the main action is right up there at the front. There's no, we're going to lead up to this. You're literally, you arrive and he is vaccinating her. How many drafts did you get through before you decided to do it that way? Or was that clear from you from the start? Once I read the account that Thomas Dinsdale, the, this uh, Quaker doctor from Essex, born in Essex, that the account that he wrote actually at Catherine the Great's instigation about her inoculation. He talks about lots of lead-up and lots of the kind of basis of how inoculation worked. It's basically giving somebody a little dose of smallpox in order to give them the disease mildly, and then they uh, have immunity. And then he, he kind of tells all that story, and then, not quite in passing, but he does then sort of just work up to this event where he is summoned by her at nine o'clock at night on an October evening. He's in a inoculation hospital called Wolf House, which is right on the edges of St Petersburg, um, where he's been preparing children from whom to take the pus, basically, to inoculate her. Yes, a lot of, oh, there's a lot of pus, pus going on. Yeah, I know. I tried, you know, it infected just... matter, but in the end, let's <laughs> just go for pus. And he'd been conducting trials of, of this inoculation practice yeah. on these young cadets, so these poor sort of 14-year-old little conscripted boys. And these trials had gone quite badly, and he'd really struggled. He'd also encountered all the superstition that 
Russians had about taking pus to inoculate. They were worried that that would actually kill the donor of of the pus. And so he delayed and delayed. He was really concerned about inoculating Catherine. And then he gets this message and it's time to go. And at nine at night, he gets in a carriage with the child who's going to inoculate her from and makes his way through these dark streets in St. Petersburg and across the river and to a back entrance of the Winter Palace where he's conducted up this, this sort of back staircase and taken to her. And she's sitting in this room on her own. He takes out his instrument, medical instrument case, and he extracts this lancet puts a little bit, it puts it into the arm of this little boy to take out some of the pus. More pus. And then, more pus, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> pus counts very high in this podcast. And inoculates her. He just pierces slightly, a tiny piercing in each arm. And that's it. And he's given this Empress of Russia, the most powerful woman in the world, smallpox. And then all he can do is treat her and wait for it to kind of take hold and then manage that illness as best he can. And even though he's done this thousands and thousands of times and it's incredibly safe, actually, much safer than people realise, it's still absolutely terrifying for Mm. him. And so he recounts this, and he does explain it, but he was a scientist, and he... He spends a lot of time talking about the science and his experiments and things, and he doesn't really do drama. But I read that and thought, God, that is just amazing. Yeah. I'd been to the Winter Palace before. I'd been to St. Petersburg. I actually had been there when it was Leningrad, 1987. And everybody's heard of it. We can visualise that, that scene. And so I had no sort of doubts about that was where I wanted to sort of plunge into it. Yeah. And so I do. It's a really excellent decision because, of course, then... We have the event, and then we have the why it happened and the why it is significant. I think we maybe need to have a few things. Number one, we're talking about inoculation and not vaccination. So could you maybe explain what the difference between those two things is? Yeah, and you're right. That's really important. And and I'm sorry to do the kind of, this is the science bit. It's going to be more puffs. I'm going to do it. (laughs) So inoculation came before vaccination. Inoculation means taking someone with smallpox, taking a bit of the infected matter from one of these pustules that, that appeared on the skin as part of the disease. And that's, so that's taking live virus and, and then putting yes. it usually into the arm, yes. just a tiny, tiny drop of it into the arm with a, usually a lancet, into the arm of a healthy patient. Mm. And that would give them a very mild dose of this absolutely terrible disease, which in its natural form killed one in five people who got it. So terrifying but in its mild form by the time Thomas Dimsdale was inoculating this event happened in 1768 doctors in Britain had and beyond but had got this down to a fine art actually they were picking up on a technique that had been happening in Africa and in Asia for centuries but they'd kind of made mistakes and then almost come back to that simplified method and it was very safe really remarkably so if done sort of sensibly and if the patient was healthy and so on and then so the patient would get a mild dose of smallpox there'd be a sort of period where you waited for the uh, for the pustules to appear and then they would often be very feverish and not necessarily feel great but after about two to three weeks they'd have passed through the inoculated disease and then they'd have complete immunity to smallpox which was absolutely wonderful because as I say it was this terrible killer. Vaccination came later so uh, we all know about Edward Jenner and Jenner was inoculated himself as a boy, he had an absolutely terrible experience with it, it was done very badly, it was when doctors in Britain were over complicating it before they reverted to the original method and he also was an inoculator, he was a doctor around inoculating people but he 
came across the idea that was he wasn't the first to, to know about it that people in dairy farming areas when they inoculated them they didn't have a reaction they were already immune even though they told him that they hadn't had smallpox so Jenna and others started to realise there was something about dairies and cows yeah. that was somehow giving people this immunity. And what it turned out to be was that a much milder disease, milder virus called um, cowpox, could give you immunity against the really vicious disease of smallpox. So Jenna's big leap was to prove that cowpox gave immunity against smallpox by inoculating people with cowpox. He called it inoculation with cowpox. And then trying it inoculating with smallpox and finding people already immune so he proved that so you could use a mild disease with far less risk to protect against a killer disease so inoculation is fire with fire and vaccination is cowpox to prevent smallpox now smallpox eradicated from the face of the earth is maybe science's biggest success story yeah how terrifying was that at the time the more you read about it the more utterly horrific it was it's it's a millennia old no one really knows when smallpox first first appeared but by the 18th century it become this incredibly virulent virus and it was killing an estimated 400,000 people a year just in in Europe and it's extraordinary really we've wow the the folk memory of of, of smallpox is, is diminished really incredibly rapidly and it killed millions globally in the 20th century about 300 million you know up until the point it was eradicated in in 1980 so you know 300 million people and we barely think about it it's incredible so in the 18th century yeah it was absolutely virulent the um the virus had become more virulent and and the 18th century was the kind of it was called the age of smallpox if you Mm. like and and you know people would say to parents don't count your children until they've had smallpox because so many infants died of it um, and pretty much everybody passed through it, and so you know you, you either died or survived. It. And, and even if you survived, you might well be scarred, disfigured, and so it yeah. could also affect joints and so on. So you know, if you think about that, so many people have had it, so many people are scarred. So this disease is always really visually present; everybody can mm. see it. You know, and to the extent that you know it became in its own kind of vaccination passport equivalent, because yeah. you know uh, people, wealthy people, might only employ a servant who'd already had small because they had they could see the scars they knew they'd had it and that meant they were immune and they wouldn't be then passing it on to others in the family or having it themselves and then potentially needing treatment yeah that's so interesting so when I was reading this I remembered a book that I'd had as a kid if you look at it you'd say it was a book that somebody bought my mum because it's from the 50s and it's from America and my mum does have relatives in America and so it makes sense that someone sent it back for her but she claims that's not the case so how it ended up in our house I don't know <laughs> a it's, a, it's by a health organisation basically it's like a public health book but with stories just, so it teaches you how to brush your teeth I must have known even as a kid that this book was weird because I've held on to it because it is so weird and now I love it but in it they go for a smallpox vaccination and that was the first time I'd ever heard it mentioned so a book that my mum could read smallpox was still active yes. and a book that my nephew but it's not that many handholds back is it and I have a friend who is a nurse and she has been um, involved in the Covid vaccination programme and that obviously started out with people you know in their maybe 70s and 80s and those people were given a bit more time to have their jab and she had a bit of time to talk to them and she told me that a surprising number of them talked about having had their smallpox vaccination so you know there's people absolutely around even Britain who had that as as children. Yeah, it's so, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Let's stop and talk about something that, that you did, which is you wrote a book about vaccinations and the disease during a pandemic. So was there anything in writing this 
that made you look at what you were living through differently or was there anything that you were living through that made you look at what you were writing differently? Absolutely. I thought when I pitched a book about the 18th century, I didn't expect it to be overtaken by events. (laughs) (laughs) I proposed this book in the autumn of 2019. And at that point, I sat with my agent and I explained all I've just said to you about what inoculation was and why I thought that this was a story that mattered for now because I pointed to anti-vax sentiment being on the rise, which it was. And I was very interested in the idea of of sort of reason and belief and risk and psychology around health and things. So I thought it was relevant even then. And then the book sort of got accepted and I got the contract as lockdown happened. So it literally was, was, I had a kind of double isolation, you know. I was writing a book which is always isolated and I was doing it when everybody else was too. Uh, there were quite unnerving parallels really. I'm not I'm not drawing a parallel between the two viruses, between the two diseases. Smallpox is, you know, almost uniquely brutal, obviously yeah. have, you know, bubonic plague and so on, but it was appalling. But in terms of I, for example, I would be reading about how um, people communities actually even in my own home county of Essex were coping economically with epidemic disease and when these waves these epidemic waves of smallpox would come into Britain we've got music on loudly all of a sudden (laughs) let's plough on through it in fact one of the parallels that really struck me was very early on when I was writing it and I was sitting there in in Essex while everybody was um, you know talking about all the Covid restrictions and we were all being allowed out for only an hour a day Mm. and I was reading about people in the same county or in generally in, in England dealing with these waves of epidemic smallpox and when those waves struck they would have to close markets close schools uh, kind of really think about you know travel people sometimes got very scared you know I came across people who kind of hadn't gone to London for for years because of fear of smallpox Mm. there was a man who wrote a letter saying he was he couldn't come to the assizes to court where he was supposed to preside because he was he was worried about an outbreak of smallpox you know it affected their daily life and they had to kind of live with it uh, and, and kind of work around it and you know we had a very different disease but you felt that connection and then as as people were dealing with you know tragically with death deaths from covid i again i was reading about people and you'd have these agonizing letters about people particularly losing their children again yeah. a very different type of virus but you know that that sense of that deep loss of family and of of just that 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 sorrow and and the helplessness of people in the face of, of disease. So that economic context, yeah, the kind of yeah, the, the emotional context, um, that that was very familiar to me. And then the other thing that became kind of almost obsessively a parallel was was leadership. But obviously, I'm writing a book about leadership of, of a woman's leadership in a, a, a context of, of epidemics and. And also of her use of example, because Catherine not only was inoculated herself to protect herself and had her son inoculated, but she used that action to then promote smallpox throughout her uh, promote smallpox inoculation throughout her empire. Yeah, uh, and she uses all kinds of means to do that, which maybe we'll talk about. But she becomes this kind of influencer, really. But she she's acutely aware of the power of example. Yeah, as she's leading. Yeah, and I, that to me, when we when we got the vac- the vaccine was developed for COVID, 
do you remember that phase where there was every politician that was kind of rolling up their oh, sleeves and having celebrities, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were, and the Queen. Yeah, you know. So again, you've got the monarchy yeah. now being used, and the Queen, very, you know, never normally talks about health issues. Yeah. but she actually did the same with polio, funnily enough, and she talked about having had the COVID vaccine. So you've got, you know, this kind of I am doing this, and that's incredibly important with inoculation because. You are, it's a preventative step, you know, yeah. you're not saying, oh god, I'm ill, treat me. You're saying, do this, trust me on this, and this will prevent you getting ill and help all of us. Um, and so, yeah, I watched that, that, that sort of, you know, that form of leading by example was incredibly familiar to me. So, looking at what you've learned from what the reaction to Catherine, being, Catherine the Great being, being inoculated, tell me, did that teach you anything or give you a perspective? on the history of what we now call anti-vaccine. I think one of the things that well, that Catherine, the great story, taught me is that there is no sort of switch you can pull that will just transform people's attitudes, yes. of course, really. Um, Ashay. Yeah, yeah, sadly. Yeah. Or lovely if you could just say, look, I did it, it's fine. Um, it, what was really interesting about her situation was that she's inoculated, she comes back to having been out of St Petersburg to sort of recuperate, she comes back with this great sort of almost triumphal procession and there's gunfire and fireworks and it's kind of huge parties and then she massively capitalises on that by having, using a kind of the Orthodox Church, having a huge mass, having parties at ballet, you know, announcing a, an annual public holiday to yeah. celebrate inoculation, all these different things. And the nobility at court all follow suit. They rush to be inoculated mm. because the doctor that inoculated her is there. She can, he can inoculate them. They can mm. follow in her footsteps. It's the fashion. She set a fashion, and and the same thing happens. That the nobility in Moscow all want to be inoculated. So many that she's worried they'll all make this journey in winter to St Petersburg. So instead, she sends Thomas Dimsdale, the doctor, to them, and he goes to Moscow to do another round of mm. inoculation. The, the bit that's hard is getting beyond the nobility yeah. and, and reaching out fully into the population and overcoming this deep, deep prejudice. Because it's worth pointing um, out that if anyone doesn't really know the history of Catherine the Great, she wasn't exactly particularly popular amongst her own people and she didn't necessarily like it like them that much. It was kind of a mutual distrust. She was a, a German, sort of minor German princess and, and, and she ended up selected to marry the inheritor of, of the Russian throne, Peter, and she, who she really didn't get on with. And she then deposed him, so he'd been about six months as emperor. And she, with the help of the army, deposed him. And... A few days after that, he died. He was murdered by um, his guards, and no one can say whether she knew about that. Mm. I don't think the consensus is that she would have ordered it, or, but it was certainly in her interest that he disappeared. Yeah. So she came to power as a usurper. She was in a coup, um, and that was in 1762. So we're now six years on from that, and actually by that time, I think people were both within Russia and beyond, more convinced about Catherine. Yeah. She'd, she'd begun a programme of reform very, very energetically. She'd published a great instruction, which was her kind of ideas, political philosophy, really. You know, she kind of massively hit the ground running as a ruler. And I think that she really understood Russia. She, she really did. She wanted to change it. She wanted people to see it differently. She wanted to, people to see it as a European state, as an, as an enlightened, forward-thinking country, not this kind of scary backwater. She was obsessed with external perceptions of it, and of course also of her own, the perceptions mm. of herself within Russia. 
Um, so I think by then, I think I think her position had solidified actually, certainly from when she'd taken over the throne yeah. you know, by force. Um, but you know, she constantly had to keep reinforcing that, and this yeah. helped her do that. And that yeah. was very much a part of what she was doing. I think I, I think she began this as a the inoculation project if you like as you know in a literal sense of she had to protect herself and her heir and you know her her inheritance her legitimacy through but I think like any great politician she's an opportunist she could see what this this could do how she could use it both internally and externally to portray herself as a a caring kind of little mother of the Russians you know these were all her people she almost compared herself with Christ you know that these this was her flock and she was leading the way but she cared about them she cared about their health and by the way she wanted to make sure that you know, it was a huge child mortality rate in Russia. She wanted a larger population to add to Russia's power. It wasn't just a sort of yeah. benign belief. Um, so she wanted to, she could kind of consolidate her own leadership, her own position within Russia through this. But she also wanted to portray Russia, as I say, as an enlightened, forward-looking state externally, but also portray herself as an enlightened leader externally. Yeah. And that's why the minute she's done this, she sort of recovers. And then she fires off all these letters to Frederick the Great in Russia and to Voltaire saying, more or less, you know, well, I've done it. And she says, oh, I was barely in bed a day. I just kind of whizzed through this. And so she's got this whole kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm this kind of strong woman, hardly suffered. And, you know, she's conveying this idea that she made a rational decision, that she just weighed up, you know, how likely are you to die from smallpox? How likely are you to die from inoculation? Okay, it's far safer to have inoculation. So, you know, of course she took that route, you know. So she's she's positioning herself as this enlightened, rational... And Voltaire absolutely sort of laps it up. They both had this extraordinary, flirtatious, uh, very engaged relationship, never met, constantly writing to each other. And he writes back to her after she's told him. She, in fact, she pretty much says she did it for him, you know. She, she, she really knew how to kind of, you know, kind of for, uh, prepare everything for each audience. And he says, you've been inoculated as easily as a nun taking an enema. That's a faint praise. So she's thrilled at that. It's interesting because talking about this story, because when we first chatted over email about this, I said, oh, one of the reasons I found this really interesting, apart from the fact that I think Russian history is fascinating, but we'll get on to that as well, was one of my favourite women in history from this period, Abigail Adams, who was the wife of John Adams, later First Lady, at the time that she was vaccinated and took the kids to be vaccinated. Inoculated, yeah. Mm. She, he was just uh, uh, sort of in the army, I mean, mm. one of the founding fathers, but he, she wasn't the First Lady yet. And she, and there's so much to admire about her, so forward thinking, and so it's so logical that as soon as it was okay, she just got up and went, yep, come on kids, we're going, we're going to go yeah. and do it. And it was she was worried about the kids' health. But what's really interesting is that all this stuff is happening simultaneously and we tend to think that the world only became the world when social media was invented. And yet, you've got a doctor from London in St. Petersburg. You've got things going on in America. I think from a global point of view, I, th- I found it really interesting. I-, I really agree. I think it was one of the things that it really strikes you when you look at this is the speed at which information travelled and uh, the kind of networks of knowledge that people had and how yeah, how rapidly information flowed and that, that goes both from the, you know, for, for non-medics the idea of inoculation yeah. and how it had of course reached Russia and yes of course it had reached America um, and all over Europe but also how if you like, they didn't use the word scientists but you know, sort of scientists and doctors were were sharing information and building on each other's knowledge you know that's that's why i'm 
for all Jenna's, you know, wondrous sort of proof of uh, discovery, if you like. I'm really anxious that people should should recognise that there were all these other shoulders, if yeah. you like, that he stood on, yeah. and all these people, men and women, were were working on this sort of, you know, for, for decades and actually, of course, centuries before. Thomas Dimsdale wrote the reason he was chosen really as Catherine's inoculator was because he'd written um, a treatise called The Present Method of Inoculating for Smallpox in 1767, where he set out as a kind of manual, really, a how-to guide explaining how one should go about inoculating and explaining the experiments that he'd done very, very 18th century, mm. all about it. It's very, you know, empirical. This is my observation, my experience. Yeah. This is this works, you know, I think this. He set out when he didn't know things, very clear scientific writing, even today. It's very, very accessible. And that publication, you know, really took off and it was found all over Europe. It went to America, you know, it was published, I think there were seven editions, four different languages, you know, it was, it, it travelled, and, and in fact it was in the library of, it was in um, libraries in Russia, it got to America. You're absolutely right, we think it's all about, all yeah. about the internet. Yeah. Absolutely not, you know, yeah. their social networks were extremely powerful. Next question, Lucy, we've been talking for 20 odd minutes about Catherine the Great and Catherine the Great's body, and we haven't talked about who she's fucking yet. <laughs> what are you playing at? <laughs> I think my argument in this book is that the most interesting thing Catherine the Great did with her body was nothing to do with, I can't believe me having to say this, horses, or shagging anybody. It was, it was this. It was using, it was using her body to promote this extraordinary step forward in science. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, and, and yet no one knows that. So people know a lie that has been, you know, hanging around her for 250 odd years, the horse myth. Yeah. Myth. And, um, and yet they they don't know that she did this. She's the only leader monarch in office to undergo inoculation while on the throne. And and that says extraordinary things about her as a leader and was an incredibly powerful thing to do. Yeah. Lucy, tell me, is it a good time to have a book out about Russian history? I think it's always a good time to have a book out about Russian history. Oh, yes. I think fighting talk, eh? No, I think we know far too little, really, about Russia. And I think that, uh, not just in the 18th century, but generally, I think, for example, we don't learn enough about Russia during the Second World War. I think we would do well to understand that yeah. huge country far better than we do yeah. um, nothing can come of picking up kind of ideas or fears of a country, it's it's far better to try to understand how that country comes to be where it is and also it, its history is astonishing, it is truly and utterly fascinating, there isn't an episode that isn't you know, I, I, worth investigating isn't gripping we did, when I did my GCSE we did so I'd have been like 14 when we started that we did Europe between the wars you know the A.J. Taylor book and I loved France and I think French history is fascinating and then Russia came along and I was, I was just like holy shit this is incredible I mean what a gift actually to give that as as a, as a lesson and I, was, I think why it's so fascinating to me is and especially where we find ourselves now that history isn't in the past 
And like you say, if you don't understand it, and I lived, have lived through a time of enormous change. And, oh. and I grew up thinking, we, we just talked about this, thinking we were going to get bombed. Then the wall came down, and then it was like, what's going to happen next? And then we now know what has happened next, and I feel like we've taken a step back. And, and so much beautiful writing comes out of Russia, so much beautiful literature. Absolutely, and, and you need the history to understand that literature, of course. But I think Russia, I feel, you know, I visited first in 1987, so actually exactly 35 years ago. In fact, very weirdly, I was there in the week that Margaret Thatcher went to visit Gorbachev. I was just there with my friend Sophie because for my 18th birthday, I had badgered my parents to let me go on an in-tourist trip to Moscow and Leningrad, and I dragged Sophie with me. We went and stayed in the Rossiya Hotel, which was this absolutely monstrous communist-era hotel on the edge of Red Square, and then we stayed in, uh, in Leningrad, and we were accompanied by a very stern lady who didn't like to let us out of her sight and we had the most extraordinary week and I am so grateful that I had that opportunity to see at least that part of Russia before it changed, you know, before yeah. the 90s um, but I think my instinct and I suppose that was what drove that trip even as a sort of 17 year old is that it is mysterious, it is really different, it was like that in the 18th century That it's been wonderful actually as part of my research reading what British travellers thought when they arrived in Russia and how they responded to it and there are some incredible accounts that I really recommend people look up including actually Thomas Dimsdale's third wife because Thomas Dimsdale went back to Russia uh, to inoculate Catherine the Great's two grandsons and, and he went in 1781 and his third wife came with him and she wrote a really actually extraordinary account very kind of slightly breathless and um, very, very uh, stream of consciousness, really, but uh, witnessing what, you know, just talking about what she saw. She asked lots of people stuff. She wrote about the serfs, she wrote about violence, she wrote about the price of things. She was a Quaker like him, and she was very interested in how the people at the sort of lowest rung of society were treated, as well as also being really quite snotty and um, kind of rather upset at first that she was expected to socialise with Catherine's gardener, even though she then found that Catherine socialised with him, so it was okay. So there are all these you know kind of wonderful accounts from then but you know people from from britain have always found russia strange and mysterious but my instinct is you have to run towards the mystery you know you should if you find something hard to grasp then then put your face in it go there think about it i mean obviously with this is a profoundly difficult time to be saying that and i fully fully appreciate that and i am horrified by what the Russian leadership has, has done, what Putin has done and, and what's happening in Ukraine um, but I still think now is the time for that same reason to be reading Russian history yeah. and yeah. Ukrainian I, I, history. I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more because that's how you learn about like, the national character is by looking at what's happened to it and how it's responded to it so yeah. Now I won't ask you about what you think about the war Ukraine was you're not a military expert, but as someone who has lived in Moscow, what did you do for two years? What are your, what are your fears about your average Russian who doesn't agree with what Putin's doing at the moment? I think it's profoundly, profoundly difficult to to cope with what is going on. I have, um, of course, I have friends there, and you know, there's one in particular who I have written to through this in fact I met her when I was in Moscow recently just before the invasion and then the invasion happened while I was there in fact and I met her and we talked about it and then I've carried on being in contact with her and she 
is in I'd say in just in enormous sort of personal distress because she she works she's a teacher she works in a school the other teachers in her school sort of take the government line they see the version that they are that is portrayed on television they believe it they they think that to be patriotic is to support Putin and to her to be Russian to be patriotic does not mean that Um, but you know she's coping every day with that dissonance that difficulty of you know not being able to even say what she thinks she obviously has other friends with whom she can but suddenly back to that old fear of not being able to use certain words you know this is not deemed to be a war this is you know a special military operation and so on and just being surrounded by people who have a completely different take on reality from her own um, and that is really painful that is hard to live with that internal sort of stress and you know I, this is none of this is to say that to compare it with the horror of what people in, in, in Ukraine are experiencing but it is also very hard to to live with with what she and other people who oppose this are going through of course and she says a lot of people have have left you know she says the people who I admire are leaving and she writes to me I'm ashamed I'm ashamed of my country and I say to her no you shouldn't you know shouldn't be ashamed to be Russian you know this is yeah. this is an action it's a set of people and yet I also have another friend someone I know um, who's in St Petersburg who has we've talked before about her support for Putin and I think it's very good that I hear that because that is you know he does have wide support in Russia um, and I think largely my sort of interpretation of that is that he has aligned himself with the notion of Russianness. If you can position yourself yeah. as Russian leader with being Russian and patriotic yeah. behaviour, then to reject Putin is to reject Russia itself, you know, and that's how he manages to make people support, yeah. as well as obviously the, the mechanisms of closing down, you know, yeah. the truth of what else is happening. Um, and, yeah, so my friend supports him, and I've found that difficult, and I write to her and say, you know, I don't know what you can see. Would you like me to send you... I don't have to, but a report about what's happening in Mariupol, I can send you it. And we've had these discussions, and it's actually quite a difficult thing to do, and it is for her, and I don't want to sit there and, you know, try and hurl all my distress and upset at what's happening at her. But equally, you know, I need to hear what she has to say to try to understand this. And funnily enough, on this question of shame, she wrote back to me saying, I don't want more, I don't want people to be hurt but I will not be ashamed you can't ask me to be ashamed of Russia this question of shame is is fascinating and just in those conversations with those two women you know that's two totally different positions now I think uh, Costa's trying to drive us out with the, uh, the cleaning their coffee machine so I'm going to call it into it there <laughs> this has been brilliant Lucy your book is out on the platform? on the seventh of April. On the seventh, of April. yeah, that's well, right. Someone knows what they're talking about. <laughs> it's the one day, I'm sure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a real joy. It's absolutely lovely, and we've battled against various different coffee machines, <laughs> and we've got there. So thank you so much for inviting me. Standard issue for all women.